about to waste more precious moments of your life listening to Stomp Tokyo, the cult movies podcast. I am Chris Holland. This is Scott Hamilton. And today we're going to talk about the death of film. Really? Yes, really. Okay. Well, the death of cellular, at any rate. Yes. So this came up in conversation actually earlier today. I was um, talking to my friend Jesse, who is the repertory film programmer at the Paramount Theater here in lovely Austin, Texas. And I guess that's our first show note is to link to the Paramount Theater. Sure. Um, show notes, by the way, can be found at cultmoviespodcast.com. Um, anyway, so Jesse, you know, is responsible for um, all the film programming at the Paramount, which mostly consists of the summer series, which is, um, you know, on the weekends they play old movies, and the winter series, which is mostly you know older Christmas-related stuff. Yeah. Um, and he was saying uh, now that Fox and Warner have essentially shut down their 35 millimeter print archives, it's getting very difficult to program, you know, 35 millimeter movies the way that he's supposed to. Yeah. I mean, is that surprising? Particularly? Well, I think it's, I think what's surprising about it is the rapidity and the, um, if that's even a word, I hope rapidity is a word. Um, and the sort of the sudden closing of the gates. Yeah. Like like just this, you know, over the this past fall and winter, you know, the studios have decided, you know what, this is costing us too much money. We don't like doing it. Digital's a better format. We're just gonna say, forget about it. Yeah. And so you know, the people shipping the prints are different. They're outsourcing a lot of their, like, if, if they are lending their films out, like, you know, other smaller houses are are the ones in control of those prints and the ones shipping them out. So it's causing, I mean, in the admittedly niche, you know, world of repertory, you know, uh, film, it's causing something of a kerfuffle. Uh in large part because, number one, a lot of these films aren't available in any digital format other than Blu-ray or DVD, which a lot of them consider to be inferior for, you know, projection to a 1,400-seat movie theater. And they're not wrong. Um, and uh, there was another point I was going to make. but um, and, and it's expensive. You know, they, they haven't converted their... Um, their theaters over to digital yet. The Paramount still has, you know, a real, real 35 millimeter projector in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's just the winds have been blowing that direction for a while now. I mean, yeah, I think, I think people thought it would, um, it would take longer, you know, um, certainly a lot of the movie houses that, um, you know, have been showing 35 millimeter for a while you know, expected to have longer to move over to the digital stuff. Um, one of the, the, the interesting points that I saw in an article was that um, the accusation that this process is being artificially pushed along faster by um, distributors who tell, um, tell the theaters that they're working with, number one, you have to have digital for, for 3D to work. 
the new 3D technology is completely dependent on digital, which may be true for all I know. Probably, certainly oh, yeah. it works better with digital. No, no, it, it's all digital. It's, yeah. yeah. And the other issue is that the um, they're insisting that where a digital system is installed, that the 35 millimeter projector that is there be removed. Okay, I don't know. Apparently, that, that, that uh, I sent you some links earlier tonight. I, you probably didn't get to read all of them, but one of those articles definitely said, you know, these the people who install these things tell the theaters the 35 millimeter projectors must be removed for the digitals to be installed. Huh. Um, which you know I think is whether it's true or not is definitely a factor in in just pushing the 35 millimeter houses out. Yeah, I mean there may be a logistical. You know, there may be a logistical problem just because most most of those booths don't have that much room, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know ex exactly what, what's going on there. Um, you know, I think I would disagree with you that with a really good Blu-ray projection system, it can look as good as, as 35 millimeter. Well, the issue is an image quality. The, the yeah. issue is reliability. Yeah. You know, an optical disc spinning is simply not reliable enough in the eyes of these projectionists um, to support. You know, if you have fourteen hundred people pay ten dollars a piece to come see a movie, and you know the the failure rate for a Blu-ray is is much higher than it is for one of these. You know, I uh, forget the acronym DCP. You know, where they've got redundant hard drives, and you know the the failure rate's a lot lower. Sure. I imagine that there are probably ways around that, though. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just thinking that if if that is the problem, then you could have redundant Blu-ray Blu-ray players. I mean, that would be a trivial expense. Well, not, neither one of us is a projectionist, yeah. and um, from the one of the things I was able to do this past December at the film festival summit was to sit in on a panel on you know, um, digital projection. And the guys selling these projection things, you know, they, you know, Blu-ray did not come up even once as a plausible option. Hmm. Um, okay. So, you know, I think if you're serious about digital projection, you know, um, in anything other than an impromptu setup where it's like, hey, let's, let's put on a show, kids. Um, Blu-ray is not entering into your... Well, and then the other issue there, I think, is uh, for first-run stuff, Blu-ray is not secure enough. Well, that may be. Right? I mean, uh, one of the major... Uh, to distributors, one of the major advantages of Blu-ray is... Or not Blu-ray, but of the, the digital projection systems is that they can um, monitor how often these things are being played. Yeah. So making a lot, you know, ten, 10 screenings to this particular theater on this particular projector of this particular item, and no more. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think those are probably two separate issues, though. Right, but but I mean, this is why a technology like Blu-ray is not being adopted in in the industry, and the repertory market represents you know a small enough piece of that industry that they're not going to make you know. Blu-ray editions of this stuff, or, or you know, a, a fully supported Blu-ray uh, system in you know in a theater like that. Yeah, I 
I don't know. I mean, I know that some do exist. Last time I was at the Tampa Theater here, mm-hmm. uh, what I watched was on Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, I know that because I know the guy who who provided it. Um, so, you know, they do exist. You know, I know the Tampa Theater must be able to play Blu-ray. Um, I don't know that it would have looked any, you know, it's always tough for me to tell at the Tampa Theater. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the, the technical capacity isn't there. I'm saying there are business reasons that, you know, if you can contract with someone to install a digital projection system in your, your theater, that you're unlikely to end up with Blu-ray as your primary format. Yeah, I mean, that's probably true. Yeah. But I imagine that, I mean, repertory theaters have a bunch of custom stuff anyway. I can't imagine that someone couldn't come up with a, you know, a dual deck Blu-ray player that, you know, inputs from one. And if something goes wrong with that disc, then it inputs from the other disc without anybody even knowing. Yeah, I mean, all kinds, you know, (laughs) it's impossible for me to to prove a negative, right? I mean, um, I think the the central issue here is it's, it's a bumpier ride than expected for repertory theaters who are used to being able to show classic movies on 35 millimeter, suddenly being told that they can no longer do that and no cost effective alternative exists for them until they pony up the money for a full-blown DCP projector. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, I guess it was going to have to happen at some time. I mean, it just seems like this year, I mean, you're definitely seeing the convergence of trends are all aiming at this year. I mean, Kodak just went out of business for crying out loud. Well, they filed for, for bankruptcy. That's not exactly what's going out of business, but yes, it's not a good sign. (laughs) Their only business model going forward is that they have to win some lawsuits over patents. If they don't win those, it's then they're done. It's, you know, liquidation. Um, You know, uh, Universal, I know, has announced a major project where they're going to be digitizing pretty much everything. Um, I don't know. Did you see that trailer? Um, the Universal Digital Restoration trailer. No, I didn't. It, it was pretty interesting. They were talking about, uh, you know, some of the classic movies that they're going to start uh, restoring. Right. Um, I thought the most interesting one from my perspective was, uh, you know, this is Universal. They're going to do a new version of Dracula, the 1931 mm-hmm. version with Bela Lugosi, and they're going to take out the hiss. Um, you know, and they show the comparison of what what it's gonna, you know, the what the famous staircase sequence is like without the hiss, mm-hmm. and it is like a completely different movie. Huh. I I had never, you know, in my memory, Dracula is a movie with a constant hiss behind it. Right. You know, it, it's just always been there. No version of it, even on DVD, ever took it out. And now they're they're actually going to take it out. It'll be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody here is arguing that uh, <clears throat> the preservation of films and conversion to digital is is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, the people who are screaming about it are generally fall into two camps. You've got the people who simply want to preserve the act of projecting on thirty five millimeter which is akin to the people who want to preserve the act of 
playing music on gramophones. Yes. Um, and you've got those folks who are trying to, you know, keep their, their businesses afloat. Yes. Um, and who are, you know, uh, I think rightfully protesting the fact that, you know, suddenly and, and without, you know, I won't say without warning, but uh, abruptly, um, you know, being deprived of their livelihoods. Yeah, I mean, uh, I you know, that's certainly a shame. But I don't know. You had to have seen it. You had to have seen it coming. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I, just... I, you know, my I'm very fond of saying that the best movie experience I've ever had was at the the man's Chinese theater, um, you know, watching District 9 on, you know, just pristine eight bazillion K DLP projection. You know, I mean, it was it was glorious. And I think that is the, you know, sort of standard that every film, you know, film uh, not film, but, you know, theater should aspire to. Um, so I'm not in love with the 35 millimeter experience. I will say there's a certain romance to, you know, going to something like B-Fest and seeing, you know, the majority of the movies being projected on film, although I don't think that's the case anymore. It certainly was the last time I went, which was 2005 or 2006. Yeah, I looking looking at the lineup of what they're showing this year. I'm assuming that most of that isn't on 35 millimeter. Yeah, maybe they're going with the romance of uh, showing it on VHS. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna you know throw some links in the show notes to the different articles about it. Uh, Roger Ebert has a pretty good one. There's a um, a petition for um, from somebody uh, at the New Beverly in um, L.A., you know, protesting the, the closure of these archives and blah, blah, blah. But I think the upshot is people are just going to have to come up with the money to convert to digital a lot sooner than they were expecting to. Yeah, I, I just don't see any other way that it's going to shake out. Yeah. I mean, you had to, I mean, again, I just don't see how you couldn't see it coming that pushing around huge reels of movies, you know, of film was not going to be the primary way of seeing movies yeah. anymore, even well, in a theater. You know, these repertory theaters, uh, I have very little sympathy for cineplexes, right? Yeah, I mean, no, like, I, I realize that the repertories are running on razor-thin margins. Yeah, and I, or, or they're nonprofits or whatever, and they operate, you know, not in terms of, like, you know, putting a plan into action in the next few months. Like, they plan out multiple years. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these folks, including Paramount, are going to have to start asking their donors, you know, pretty pretty quickly now. Oh wait, I guess we're you know if you want there to be movies at the Paramount, there we're going to have to get a, a digital projection system. Yeah, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it's not going to be what they want to be doing. Yeah. Anyway, um, are there any theaters in your area still projecting on 35 at all? Do you know? Um, I know that the movie code near me. Still has some theaters that show 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure that I've seen some some kids movies on 35 recently. Yeah, I mean you can usually tell. I mean if the print is dirty, then you know it was 35 millimeter. Um, most of the time, uh, most of the, you know I go and see the the current movies, the big blockbusters. Most of those are digital now. Yeah. Um, you know they they also have an IMAX. They have an IMAX theater there. Mm-hmm. 
um, which definitely is showing digital digital prints in there most of the time. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, yeah. uh, what about it, the repertory? The- I mean, you spoke about the Tampa Theater, which seems to have some sort of DLP projector. What about like the beach? And- uh, does the beach even still exist? Um, the beach does still exist. Um, they are apparently in quite a bit of financial trouble. Um, as uh, they talk that that they they're not a nonprofit, which surprised a lot of people. Uh, you know, the they talked to uh, what's her face. I think it was Tara from the Tampa Theater mm-hmm. about the Beach Theater, and she was like, "Wait, they're not a nonprofit. <laughs> Why not?" Um, you know, because they're a historic landmark. Blah blah blah. They right. could be. They could be a nonprofit. Um, the last thing I saw there, I'm pretty sure, was digital. Okay. Um, it was. It was. Uh, um, what's his face? Is uh, documentary Vinnie Herzog's documentary. Uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure it was digital. Uh, you know, I think that the movie was shot entirely digitally. Um, but I'm pretty sure the source that we watched was digital as well. Gotcha. All right. Well, we killed that subject real good. Uh, do we want to talk about the B-Fest lineup? Go through that real quick? Sure, sure, sure. Why not? Um, for those who haven't listened to earlier episodes and don't know what B-Fest is, you can go to b-fest.com and learn all about this annual 24-hour movie marathon of, I guess at this point it's just bad movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've sort of abandoned any pretense that it's sci-fi and, and you know, fantasy, and like, you know, Stuff like Stunt Rock in there. Um, um, and Roadhouse is the, the yes. only other non-genre movie in there. Gotcha. So why don't you read these off, and we'll talk about each one as you read them. Okay, uh, Best of the Best. Um, that's a uh, Taekwondo movie. Yep. Which I have not seen for a very long time. Uh, probably not since VHS... You know, in the in the uh, early '90s, or uh, so I cannot talk very much about it except that it had James Earl Jones. I remember that. Yeah, 1989. Eric Roberts, Who? Sally Kirkland, uh, <laughs> Chris Penn. Can I remember Chris Penn? Barely. Uh, Louise Fletcher. Ooh, wow! All yeah, star. yeah. Nurse Ratchet. Yes. Anyway, yeah. I mean, it, that that's. Uh, as as these things go, that's it's a good one to start with. You know, high energy, you know, lots of cheesy eighties action. Um, like a good way to sort of start things off. Some, some pretty good music. Um, not so horrible that it's going to be punishing. So that's right. probably going to be good. All right. After that, uh, next up is Astro Zombies. Astro Zombies, which is a Ted V. Michaels movie. It's two 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 genres in one. Um, that had uh, John Carradine and uh, I believe Tura Sun- uh, what's her name Tura Santana was in it yes, from, yes uh, she was from the uh, what's what's his name uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill yes yeah um, not a very good movie not a very good movie <laughs> um, let's see next after that is a kids movie I 
I don't think they're going to be showing this on 35mm. Uh, I, I've never heard of this. I have no idea what this is. Well, it's a TV movie. It's To Catch a Yeti. Um, and it, it's basically a, uh, a Gremlins... Not even, I don't even want to say Gremlins because that's not even right. It's an E.T. ripoff. Gotcha. Um, a really <laughs> meatloaf. late... With Meatloaf <laughs> as the bad guy. I, in fact, remember watching this on TV for whatever godforsaken reason. Probably because it had the word Yeti in it. Yeah. That's a 3.1 rating on the IMDb. It's... it's uh, Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean... It'll be fun to watch with a group. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, you know, it is it is a kids movie, and the worst kind of kids movie, a bad kids movie. Yeah. Just, just to compare, Best of the Best has a five point eight rating. Yes. And Astro Zombies, looking up, looking up, nineteen sixty eight, has a two point five. Wow. Astro <laughs> Zombies is worse than To Catch a Yeti. Somehow, I doubt that. I think that it's just not enough people have seen To Catch a Yeti. Yeah. Um, it is. I don't even. I, is it? I assume it's on VHS or something. Ah, uh, yeah. Who knows? I, I mean, mean, it may be one of those things that they actually do have a film print for, since it's yeah. relatively recent. And um, I happen to know that like Modern Sound and Swank had do a brisk business in like um, children's and school screenings. Yeah, so it might be like a sixteen millimeter movie. Yeah, yeah. probably. Okay, so then uh, after after they finish off that wonderful movie, it'll be the traditional Wizard of Speed and Time short. Which, has that has that shown up online anywhere? I find it amazing that it hasn't popped up on YouTube or something. Um, I think it is on YouTube. I mean, I have a copy of it. Yeah, I, I downloaded the, you know, the QuickTime version that they made available a while back, a few years ago. But, um, yeah. Um, it probably is on YouTube. I haven't checked. And uh, the traditional midnight movie is Plan 9 from Outer Space. So. Oh, yep, the original short is online. Okay. Look at that. God, uh, is it really only three minutes long? I think it's six minutes, isn't it? Six or seven? Oh, no, this has three minutes. That may not... You know, that may not be the full thing, yeah. I don't know, I can't open up... I don't want to open up iTunes and check, but... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and then Plan 9 from Outer Space will be at midnight as per usual. It really is only three minutes long. I just checked the YouTube version and it looks like the full film. Yeah, let me... Hold on, I've got my thing right here. Let me check real quick. Um, yeah, only three minutes. How wow. about that? Wow. Of course, they show it backwards at, at B-Fest, right. too. Yeah, yeah. I so. mean, it takes... <laughs> It takes them a few minutes to get through. I think All it right. takes a few, yeah. They so, show it. They show it forwards, then backwards, and forwards again. So, it's, yeah. So the traditional screening of uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space. Plan Nine from Outer Space, which I really think they should show that backwards once, just to yeah. <laughs> which has a three point seven rating. <laughs> so Ken uh, Ken pointed out at some point that um, the only reason Plan Nine from Outer Space is a midnight tradition is that the original tradition film, which was The Creeping Terror, oh. uh, the, the print was no longer available. Ooh. You know, I've got to say that of the two, I'm kind of glad that Creeping Terror isn't available. Yeah, it's kind of difficult to watch. I yeah, it's just, it's just boring. Plan 9 from Outer Space is bad, <laughs> but it's not that boring. 
Yeah. At least the setting changes fairly often, and you know it does have Bella Lugosi and not Bella Lugosi. There's some fun stuff in there. Yeah. Sure, and you know if you've seen it a zillion times, that's a great time to go out to the lobby and catch up with people you haven't seen in forever. Sure. All right. So then, getting late, late into the night, they're going to show uh, Avenging Disco Godfather. Okay. Which is a Rudy Ray Moore movie. Um, so, you know, either you've seen Rudy Ray Moore movies or you haven't. Um, is is that the same movie as Disco Godfather, or are they yes, different yes. films? Okay. Same, same All movie. Right. All right, four point three on the IMDb. <laughs> so you're going to keep going with that, huh? Yeah, okay. definitely. All right, uh, three a.m. when everyone will be asleep, they're going to show Deathbed, the bed that eats. Again, something I had never heard of. I, I've definitely heard of that. It was a late seventies horror movie. Um, I keep wanting to say it's German, but I don't think it was. 1977, uh, 4.8 from 713 users. Um, yeah, but fairly fairly obscure. No, country USA. Yeah, no, no, I, I always confuse it with like there was an elevator movie. There, mm-hmm. there was like a bunch of inanimate gotcha. house fixture movies from Germany. This is not one of them, but it's kind of the same idea. Yeah, filmed almost entirely at the Garwood Mansion on Kielsen Island in Detroit. Um, and it's an, it's kind of an anthology movie, which for people watching it at 3am that's going to be really trippy. Okay. Um, because they're going to be, you know, by that point you're usually falling asleep, you can't really remember, right. and you're going to have characters that appear and disappear. That's going to be fun. Yep, um, that, that comes at 3 in the morning. 3 in the morning. At 4.25, at the ass crack of the convention, or the uh, the festival, they're showing Tarkan versus the Vikings. Also uh, known as Tarkin and the Blood of the Vikings. 1971. Uh, it's Turkish. 6.4 um, rating on the IMDb. Wow, that's that that's going to make it one of the better movies of the day. Yeah. It's... Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I've seen it. Um, the highlight is definitely the giant rubber octopus that uh, the bad guys keep to, to dispose of the people they don't like. Uh, you know, uh, I keep meaning to get one of those. <laughs> yes. Um, everybody needs one of those. It's, uh, it's very violent. Um, I don't know what else, what else to say, say about it. It's another one. It's a Turkish action movie. You really have to have to see it to uh, to understand what that means. Uh, all right, 5.55 a.m. They're going to be showing Mutant Hunt. Mutant Hunt, video, 1987, 2.9. Yeah, um, that's, that's another one I've seen. Um, you know, low-budget, low-budget kind of quasi-cyberpunk trying-to-be kind of movie. Um with you know uh the the bad guys all wear sunglasses and leather coats and they are robots it's very very (laughs) i love the plot keywords on on imdb for this laser gun smoking fictional drug kicked in face yes (laughs) (laughs) i did not know that kicked in the face was considered a a subgenre 
but now I do. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's it's someone who who read too much William Gibson trying to make a trying to make a movie out of it. Uh, same guy did uh, Robot Holocaust, which a lot of people know from uh, Mystery Science Theater. Right. Okay. Um, at seven fifteen, Guru the Mad Monk. Seven, which, the seven o'clock hour was always sort of when I caught my second wind. Yeah. Like once you'd made it to to seven fifteen, you know. Now, granted, you would crash around again around noon or so, but then you got your third wind around three in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Guru, Guru the Man Monk will will knock that wind right out of you. Uh, that's uh, an Annie Milligan movie, super low budget. Nineteen seventy three point six. Wow, that high, huh? Um, a deranged 15th century prison colony chaplain exploits his power to get money for his church, including murder and grave robbing, considered it, committed by his vampire mistress so and one-eyed hunchback assistant. Yes. If it's probably supposed to be 15th century, um, I, I suggest you, before they start that movie, are you going to be there this year? I sadly am not. Okay, neither am I. Well, someone there should start a should start a pool for who who can who can spot the first modern telephone in that movie. Mm. <laughs> um, because you know that that's kind of how Andy Milligan was not not detail oriented, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, let's see, eight twenty five, brain from planet Oris. Um, uh, nineteen fifty seven, five point one rating. Classic nineteen fifties. John alien Agar. invasion movie. John, yeah. John Agar is possessed by a giant brain. Uh, a giant brain with eyes. Uh, is this the first... No, it's the first non-Plan 9 black and white, isn't it? Uh, is Astro Zombies in black and white or color? I think Astro Zombies is in, is in color, but I could be wrong. Um, 1968. I forget. Hold on. Yes, yeah, in color. Okay, so then, yeah, that so would be the only other one. other than Plan 9, that would be the, looks like the only other black and white movie. That they're showing. They're showing. Werewolf in the Girls Dormitory. That's black and white, I think. And Came From Beneath the Sea is black and white, right? Yes, yes, so, yeah, okay. after that so, point. Okay. All right, so, sorry, getting ahead of ourselves. Um, blame, from, blame from Planet Honest. Right. Uh, also, the first film that the B-Masters did as a roundtable review. Um, and I think they sort of immediately learned their, their lesson that everyone reviewing the same movie was not a great idea. True. Yeah. <laughs> How many jokes can you make about this stupid movie? All right. Yeah. Uh, 9.40 a.m. Stunt Rock. I know it's Australian. And I know it's on my list of movies to see, but I have not seen it. Um, I have I seen... The scenes from it and the trailer for it numerous times uh, because it's one of the favorite things for the Alamo Drafthouse people to, to pull out for their pre-show stuff. Gotcha. Um, but, I mean, it's basically just, it's exactly what the title says. It's, you know, crazy stunts, many of them done on motorcycles, set to rock music. Gotcha. Um, I know it's on. Uh, it was in the documentary, not quite Hollywood. So that's yes. how it's. It's on my list, but I haven't. I haven't yet to see it. So yeah. uh, let's see. Eleven forty. Roadhouse. It's no. Okay. I kind of think, and I haven't really gone out to look for you know the reaction to this, but 
Is this a film that belongs in B-Fest? I think so. I think so. Um, I, I think I enough recent- time has gone by. Yeah, yeah. I recently rewatched Roadhouse, and it is bad in some pretty special ways, um, <laughs> especially the action scene at the end. Yeah. Um, it does get pretty silly. Um, By the way, Stunt Rock has a 5.7 rating. <laughs> uh-huh. And now okay. depress me by telling me what Roadhouse is. is. Roadhouse, 1989, also known as Kuma Kapaka in Iceland. Whatever. Has a 6.0 rating okay. from, get this, 18,457 users. Doesn't surprise me. That's, that's a lot of people voting on Roadhouse. Yeah. All right. Uh, so then, yeah. Then uh, Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. Um, I should point out that anyone listening who's hearing uh, papers go flying back and forth, it's my wife grading papers across the table. <laughs> I, uh, I tried to banish her to, you know, the closet, but she wouldn't do it. She's like, no, this is the only clear flat surface in our entire house, so this is where I'm going to do my grading. <laughs> All right, back to uh, back to the uh, werewolf teacher in, in Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. 1961, 82 minutes, 4.7 out of 10. Yeah, not, not a very good movie. Um, I see that it was a double feature with Corridors of Blood, which was a Boris Karloff movie. And it's in black and white. That is in black and white, yes. Uh, uh, that's good that they're getting some black and white movies in there. Yeah, interesting that all the black and white has been so uh, has been so backloaded, though. Yeah, uh, that it's it's yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, they should have probably put one of those on the night before. Yeah. Um, let's see, three hundred five, the Galaxy Invaders. Which I guess is actually the Galaxy Invader. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think Galaxy Invader. It's um. Oh god, I have seen it. It's a, a local. It was shot in like Baltimore, I think. Yeah, uh, Don Doler. Is Don fairly, Doler. Uh, notorious. Low budget. Budget. Yeah. High gore. Shot in '85. Uh, Two point nine on the IMDb. Yeah, that's about right. And the big finish. Uh, the sponsored. Only, sponsored by us. Uh, the only giant monster movie I believe this year, unless you count Tarkin and the Vikings. Uh, is it came from beneath the sea, uh, the Ray Harryhausen sextopus movie. <laughs> you make it sound so dirty. <laughs> I know, I know. Five point um, eight. Really, that low? See, mm-hmm. okay. I don't know. See, the internet is stupid. Um, that's pretty. Well, I think that's me. that's a that's a truism. Yeah, um, you know, it's got a a giant. Well. Octopus in air quotes, you know, fighting, uh, fighting guys with flamethrowers. That's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, yeah, that'll be a that'll be a pretty good that'll be a pretty good ending to the fast, and you know, people can chant USA, USA when the soldiers go after the octopus at the yeah. end. I wonder, I wonder, and I'm not going to do this research now because it would take probably ten or fifteen minutes. But and I wonder how many of these are actually available on Netflix streaming. And mm-hmm. how much of a B-Fest, you know, like a, a homegrown B-Fest you could do. I don't know. I, I will I will update the show notes with uh, with a final count. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would assume things like Deathbed are not on there. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure, though. I'm kind of surprised at some of the stuff that sometimes shows up on, uh, on Netflix. 
Yeah. Um, especially older stuff. Like, I bet Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory is on Netflix. Yeah, some of the stuff that's like, you know, 60s, 70s, and, and in some cases has hit, um, you know, the, the copyrights are a little fuzzy. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of stuff that, that tends to show up on, on Netflix. Well, last <laughs> night for movie night, we actually watched a movie which I had never really heard of. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of surprising. Uh, called the Black Sleep. Okay. Um, which was doubly surprising to me because it does have, well, the the cast is uh, Basil Rathbone. Uh, um, let's see, Basil Rathbone, John Carradine is in it. Bell Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr. Um, so it's not like an insignificant cast. Um, in fact, it's also Bela Lugosi's actual last movie, unless you count Plan 9 from Outer Space, but the footage of him in Plan 9 from Outer Space was not actually shot for Plan 9 from Outer Space. It was right. just Edward noodling around, and he then built an entire movie around that footage. Uh, you know, hey, Respect, th- man. Yes, this was, the, this was the last movie that Bela Lugosi consciously participated in and the only movie he participated in after rehab oh, um, he looks terrible <laughs> I will say <laughs> I mean and so does Lon Chaney Jr. he looks terrible too I mean we actually went back and then after the movie after the black sleep we watched a little bit of uh, uh, the Wolfman the original 1941 movie mm-hmm. which was 15 years before and you know and with both both Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. are in that one, and they both look so good. And 15 years later, you know, they both looked terrible. Hey, man, um, you know, Western medicine was not what it is today. Well, that and, you know, doing, you know, drinking drinking to excess in heroin will take years off your life. Oh, damn it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, now you tell me. I mean, beyond that, The Black Sleep was kind of that... A, a very standard plot um, that what it was uh, there's a guy he's he's been convicted of murder he's saved by his friend Basil Rathbone uh, and and basically forced to help Basil Rathbone in his experiments Basil Rathbone is cutting into people's brains for some reason he's trying to figure out how to save his wife uh, from she's in a coma because of a tumor, so he's trying to figure out how to do brain surgery that will save her life. And you know, all of his failed experiments are in the basement, and at the end, they all get out. And they include Tor Johnson is one of the is one of the failed experiments, <laughs> and they kill everybody. The end. Um, you know, it's well, now the, I don't need to see it. It's the atomic brain. It's the brain that wouldn't die. There were a bunch of movies, you know, kind of with that same template. Right. Um, you know, this one just happens to have a better, better cast. It was apparently made to kind of capitalize on the fact that the Universal horror movies were coming to TV. Mm-hmm. So they basically got together as many of the, the Universal horror movies people they could and put them in one movie. Got it. But interesting to see, if only from the perspective of Bela Lugosi's last movie. Yeah. Uh, this is apropos of nothing, but I, I heard about one of the midnight films that played at Sundance this year. Uh, it's called Grabbers. Have you heard about this? No. It's apparently a fairly standard alien invasion movie. 
Um, the the two things that make it interesting are number one, it's Irish. Okay. And number two, um, the aliens who apparently eat people. Um, alcohol is toxic to them. So the only way to avoid being eaten <laughs> is to maintain a blood alcohol level of a certain thing. So, so they land in Ireland? Really? So it's drunk Irishmen fighting aliens. Okay. You think it would be easier if they had landed in Saudi Arabia, but uh, okay. Well, th- but this is why Ireland has held out for so long. Oh, okay. So they've conquered the rest of the world. I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, you know, looked at it, but... You know, uh, someone who was paying much more attention to the Sundance slate than I was pointed this out to me. It sounds like it's probably pretty funny. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it'll be, you know, it'll be winging its way to DVD by, by the end of the year. So the actor, uh, I hope I, I'm saying his name right, Neil McDonough? Uh, sounds good to me. Um, who's also in, is he in Breaking Bad? You watch Breaking Bad. I do not. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, um, I, I have enough depression and horror in my life. Okay, he's either in... Break- and a high school teacher. He's either in... Yeah. So, Neil McDonough. Um, who did an interview with someone. Yeah, he was on, a, I think it's a red carpet interview. He's either in Breaking Bad or Desperate Housewives. I can't remember which. Um, and he's uh, and, he, and this he's in Justified this season. But he was also played Dum Dum Dugan in the Captain America movie. Kind of okay. a small role. Um, but he was interviewed on the red carpet, and he dropped the fact that uh, even though it hasn't been officially announced, Captain America 2 is coming in 2014. Okay. And he seemed to think that the next movie that Marvel was going to be doing after that was going to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. movie with Sam Jackson as Nick Fury. Um, and he was hoping that he would get to, to be in that, too. Huh. Which that would be pretty interesting. You're not wrong. Um, and then he he uh, he said that uh, he wanted it to be set in the 70s. Yeah. Well, uh, here's the quote. Um, asked why he's excited about the possibility of a Shield movie, McDonough replied, "Because it'll be me and Sam Jackson in the real Marvel universe. Dum Dum Dugan is Nick Fury's right hand man." And I just pray that they have a 1970s setting because I want to see Sam Jackson with lamb chops kicking people's asses for Marvel Universe. <laughs> it would be just awesome. I, I cannot disagree with that. That would be awesome. That would be a lot better than the remake of Shaft. Um, That's true. I, I think he's joking there, though. I don't think he actually knows anything about... He prays. He prays that they... I mean, how hard would it be for them to do a 10-second you know, a, a flashback with... Sam Jackson and Mutton Chops. Yes, that would be pretty cool. And and, and, and hopefully an afro. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the Stomp Tokyo Book Club. Um, I'm okay. Reading, yeah, I'm reading a book called MM9. Okay. Um, I believe it is coming out as a physical book. Um, it's. I bought it on the Kindle. It may be coming to iBooks as well, but I'm not sure about that. Um, it is of interest because it is about giant monsters. Okay. Um, in particular, it's about a, a world where giant monster attacks are so common that the Japanese government has a department just to just to track and deal with giant monsters. Gotcha. Um, and so they, the the title is that they have a, they have a scale like for earthquakes. 
So MM is monster magnitude nine. Nine would be gotcha. would be the worst worst thing possible that they've kind of theorized, but it's never really happened. Um, the 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 book is the book is pretty good. It's it's kind of uh, arranged in chapters, and each chapter is them trying to deal with a different mysterious kaiju, and they have to figure out what's going on with each one. Um, the um, what was I going to say? There there are a lo- there are a lot of references to you know if you're into monster movies, there are a lot of references to other giant monster movies. Um, not Godzilla, though. It, at least so far, it seems like they're kind of avoiding Godzilla movies. Mm. Um, there are quite a few specific references to Gamma movies. Huh. Um, so I don't know if they just thought that Godzilla was too overplayed, that they're kind of pretending that Godzilla doesn't exist. But, you know, there are very explicit references to, for example, uh, Baragon, uh, the monster that that hatched out of a uh, out of a out of an opal. They ref- they mentioned that. They mentioned that there's another monster that uh, chased a, a statue from Eastern Island. That's from Gamera versus Jigger. Um, they also make a lot of references to American monster movies, like Tarantula and the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms are 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 given shout outs. Um, so far, not so much Godzilla though. So here's my question. Yes. Have you figured out which one of the people who work for the Meteorological Agency Monsterological Measures Department has the beta capsule? <laughs> um, not yet. Um, they're, they're, uh, you know, that would be a, an obvious joke. They haven't quite gone there yet. Um, the, the other thing I should mention about the, 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 this novel is that it was made into a TV series. In Japan, really? Yes, um, but I've got to say the TV series didn't. I did not like it. I haven't managed to make it through more than about the first three episodes. Mm. And there, there's two reasons for this. Is one, the DVDs I got are Chinese, and the English subtitles are more of a exercise in abstract poetry than actual dialogue. Um, so. You, so, to some extent, I can't really tell what's, what people are talking about. It doesn't always make sense. But more to the point, it seems like they, the TV series has very little monster action. Um, it seems like they basically decided to make a relationship show. So, like, in the first three episodes, only one of them features a monster at all. And it seems like that continues, you know, I've looked through the all 10, 10 episodes, and it looks like there's really only a monster in the last episode, and the rest of it is their personal lives. Um, I was afraid the novel was going to be the same way, but it is not. The novel, the novel is, is lots of monster action and some very high-concept ideas as to why there are monsters and why they act the way they do. It's actually a very interesting novel. TV series, not so much. Oh well, yeah, it's a, it's a shame, but definitely read the novel. It's cheap, you know. It, it's cheap on the Kindle. Well worth reading. Okay then. Noted. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Cool. Well, I think that wraps it up for this week. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. 
as always, a pleasure. Uh, find us at coldmoviespodcast.com. Scott is on Twitter as Scopi, S-C-O-P-I. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Stomp Tokyo. And uh, thanks again for listening.